Well, as you're sitting down, if you want to pull your Bible out, set it on your lap and begin to turn to two places today, Acts chapter 17 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. While you're finding those places in your copy of the Bible, I want you to keep your ears tuned the next couple of weeks because our contractor tells us that we are about a month away from being able to move over into our warehouse over on Britmore, just a few minutes from here, but we're dealing with the city of Houston. We love Houston, but they can be a little bit to deal with, and then of course, Uh, construction, you never know what's going to happen, and and weather delays, all those kinds of things. So keep your ears tuned. Um, Subscribe to the newsletter online so that that comes to you once a week. Uh, Follow us on social media. uh, Download the app. We'll use all of those methods to let you know, hey, don't show up at Westchester this week. Show up at Britmore. So we'll do our best in communicating, but you make sure that that line of communication is open, and we'll do our best to tell you here on a Sunday, hey, next week, come to this other place. So make sure that you're also coming every week. Uh, It's a good idea in general, but uh, you don't want to show up where we're not. Uh, So uh, October 28th is kind of the circled day, uh, but we hold that very open-handed. So just keep your ears tuned. Here's the question I'm asking today. Does Christianity have a future? I know that feels pretty bloated and and big, but I think it's reasonable. Even last night, we took our kiddos to see an animated film, and during the first act, they seemed to be questioning the idea of a scripture, uh, a holy text in which you would decide what you're going to do with your life based on. It it was just a little seed. Uh, It wasn't offensive, really, in any way, but it sort of brought into question some of the fundamentals of our faith. So I think it's okay in this moment of 2019 to ask that question. Does Christianity have a future? Things that we're taking in, uh, things that are happening in the world. Does Christianity have a a future? But we are not going to look to the culture and our society around us in America or otherwise to answer that question. That is not the place to go and find an adequate answer for that question. Does Christianity have a future? All you need to do is ask yourself one simple question. When was the last time that you told someone about Jesus who did not currently believe in Jesus? Meaning, when was the last time you had a Jesus conversation with someone who was outside the faith? That is the answer to does Christianity have a future? Maybe you're like me and you're a little ashamed of when it was uh, the last time. Because I think most of us are sincere but silent. We really do believe that Jesus is God's son whom God sent into the world to save the world. Forgiveness of sin is available through his sacrifice on the cross. He was raised on the third day, sent into heaven, and one day he will return. We are sincere in that belief but silent. Because it's a challenge. It always has been a challenge. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17 tell the same story, essentially. In Acts 17, it, it describes how the Apostle Paul brought the gospel along with his friends to Thessalonica for the first time. Verse 1. Now when they had passed through 
Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So this is the introduction to the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God is saving the world in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Gospel is not a religious word. It has sort of been taken over by the Christian faith. But gospel is a word that was just used all along to describe good news. So this good news, Paul and his friends brought to Thessalonica. And it said that he reasoned with the Jewish people for three Sabbaths. Because every Sabbath, the Jewish people would gather in their synagogue. And when Paul wanted to share the gospel, this was the most natural place to do it because he was Jewish. So he went to people he had that affinity with. He had something in common. That would be the equivalent of you talking about Jesus with somebody that you work with. You have that in common. Or um, a parent on your kid's soccer team. You have that in common. Or someone who lives in your neighborhood. You have that location in common. So he would go into these places to preach the gospel to them. And it says that he had to reason with them that the Christ was to suffer because those Jewish people in that synagogue on those Sabbaths had believed in the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were all expecting it, but they were expecting upwards and onwards that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem and push out the Roman Empire, push out any Jewish person who wasn't being faithful. And God would establish his kingdom there in the heart of Jerusalem and it would reverberate around the world. But the idea that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem and then die, that did not fit the narrative that they had in their minds. So Paul had to reason with them on the Sabbath when they were gathered in the synagogue that the Christ was to suffer. Meaning that the Old Testament prophecies, not only did they talk about the victory of the Messiah, it also talked about the sufferings of the Messiah. That's where he started sharing the message of Jesus and then it reverberated outward. Greek people believed. Some of the leading women believed. This is how he brought the good news to the Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it tells us how he did it. In what manner he did it. Which I think is important because it's hard to talk about Jesus. It's hard to talk about Jesus and continue having a relationship with the person you're talking to. It's, it's hard to be honest and kind at the same time. So I think one of the reasons why we are sincere but silent is because we don't know how to act. We know we should. We just don't know how. So here are a few things that we can learn from the Apostle Paul and his friends. It says in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. 
For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There are three things that I want you to write down and remember this morning. Number one, do not add unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. Do not add any unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. For you remember, brothers, verse 9, our labor and toil... We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul says that he proclaimed the gospel of God, the good news of God to the Thessalonians. That word proclaim, it's like being a herald, a a messenger. See, in the first century, they didn't have the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, FedEx, and whatever secret scheme Amazon is building at this very moment to dominate that industry. If you wanted to pass on a message of importance to somebody in a different town, you had to hire a herald, a messenger, or you had to know someone who was willing to make that trip. So you would tell them the message, maybe you would write it down, but you would give it to them and they would journey to the person that needed to hear the message and then they would deliver it. We see this in the gospels. When Lazarus falls sick, his sisters, Mary and Martha, find a herald a messenger to take the news to Jesus, Lazarus, whom you love is sick. Now the idea is when Jesus hears this from the messenger, he's going to immediately come to Bethany and heal Lazarus because Mary and uh, uh, Martha knew that Jesus was able to do this. And God has said through Christ that we are his messengers. We don't create the message. The message in many instances has already been written down for us. So we don't come up with the message. We don't sit in a room and think about what the message should be. We already know what needs to be delivered, but God has delegated the responsibility of the messaging to us. But it says that the apostle Paul, while he was delivering this message, toiled and experienced hardship. Now what he's talking about is that he had to go and get a job. Now if you have a job, even if it's your dream job, you understand it as labor and toil. Work is hard. And that's what Paul is saying. I went and found a job that was difficult so that I could proclaim the gospel to you. It it was not unheard of that when a messenger like Paul would come and start to reason with the Jewish people in the synagogue, that they would take up an offering potential and say, we want to hear these things. We want to know these things. We understand that you are a traveling teacher. So we're going to take an offering and and give it to you so that you can pay for a room here uh, so that you can have food to eat. That was not unheard of. In fact, many of the churches in the New Testament did this kind of ministry of supporting these teachers. But Paul didn't want that to be an obstacle for the Thessalonians. This is probably the first time that they're hearing about Jesus. So he didn't want to say, hey, I have this big news to tell you. Also, could I borrow some money? I mean, it would be unheard of for you to want to talk about Jesus tomorrow and at the same time think, well, I'm delivering this message about Christ to my coworker. I'm also going to ask him for $20 just for the right to be able to hear it. Like you wouldn't do that. That seems unthinkable to us. And so it was unthinkable to the apostle Paul. He didn't want any obstacles. He didn't want money to be a weird thing in between him, the gospel and the Thessalonians. So he went and found a job. Now, thankfully he had a trade. He was a tent maker. If you were throwing a celebration in the first century, it was bigger than your house. You had a tent, 
where the party could overflow to. Or if you had to travel a bunch, uh, you would have a tent. And the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. That's probably what his father was and his grandfather before him. And so when he would go into towns and they were not supporting him there locally, he would go and find a job because he didn't want money to be an obstacle. Now, again, that's, that's probably not that relevant to us. When we think about the people that we want to have heard the gospel, we're not thinking about money, but we mix other things in. And money was not the only thing that could be an obstacle in the first century. One of the big questions they had to wrestle with was, Jesus was Jewish. If I follow Jesus, do I have to become Jewish? The Jewish people had lots of different customs. They were the ceremonial people of God. So they washed their hands a certain way. They ate certain kinds of foods. They abstained from things that the rest of the world didn't abstain from. And so as people are following Jesus for the first time, they're wrestling with that. And so some of them were on the side of, yes, of course you have to become Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Why would you not do everything that Jesus did? And others were saying, no, that's, that's just their heritage. That's their ethnicity. We don't need to take that on. Acts chapter 15, that's what it's about. The apostles praying and what seems to good in them and the Holy Spirit to say, no, you do not have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. But this was another potential obstacle. Again, those two things, probably not the reason why we are not sharing our faith in Christ, money and Judaism. We mix in things like politics, There has been a day, maybe still is a day, that if you follow Jesus, of course you are going to vote this way. Of course you are going to be a member of this particular party. And depending on what part of the country you lived in, it may be a different political party that you had to join. We mix that in. Um, For those of you who have kids, we mix in schooling. You follow Jesus, why would you not send them to Christian school? Why would you not homeschool them? Why would you send them into the den of drugs and thieves known as public school? Now, I I hope that that seems ridiculous here at Bayou City, but there are churches and Jesus communities around America where if you sent your kids to public school, you would be on the outside of the core of the church. So you start going down the list of things that you think are important. We are members of the church, but we're also members of all kinds of different tribes, clans, groups. And you start merging those things together, the gospel and my tribe, my group, my clan. You could see how you start adding obstacles for people. But the apostle Paul says, no, I went and got a job so that the only thing that I could preach to you was Christ crucified. So that's our message. Number two, as we talk to people about Jesus, we keep watch over our conduct. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. He reminds the Thessalonians, you saw exactly how we conducted ourselves. We were righteous, we were holy, and we were blameless. And he says, God also saw it. So he says this as a way to just affirm and strengthen his previous statement. You know how we acted. You are witnesses, God also. But it also adds the element of what you could see, we were holy, righteous, and blameless. But even what God could see 
in the invisible places, we were holy, righteous, and blameless. And he's using those three words together. They essentially are synonyms. Each of them have their own points of emphasis, but he's piling them up together to make a point. We kept watch over our conduct and there was nothing about our manner that disqualified our message. There are at least two groups of people in here. There are those who've been accused of being a hypocrite and those who have accused others of being a hypocrite. But we are all familiar with that. A hypocrite was a word that in the ancient sense was used to describe an actor in a play. The idea being that there was an onstage persona and there was an offstage persona. When I was on stage, I was this character. But then when I was off stage, I was a completely different person. So when you call someone a hypocrite, that's the accusation that you're making. In this one instance, you acted like this. You were this one persona. But then in another instance, you acted completely different. So at church, you act this way. And at work, you act another way. At church, you act this way. And at home, you are a different person. But the Apostle Paul would say, no, we kept watch over our conduct, that there was no delineation. There was no onstage, offstage. Because when this happens, it's very damaging. There was an author that I loved. In fact, many of his writings just helped shape my faith. And he was a very important person in my upbringing. I never met him personally, but his books made a real difference in my life. They were simple but effective. And in the last year, he has been accused and was guilty of sexually harassing the women in his life for the entire time that I was reading his books. And even though I never met him personally, when that happens, you have to ask yourself, what part of my faith is real? Is my faith tainted because this person acted this way and led us to believe he was this way, but in reality, he was a different person? We have to keep watch over our conduct. He says that they were holy and righteous and blameless. Now what's interesting is he's talking to them saying, when we were preaching the gospel to you, when we were telling you about Jesus for the first few times, this is how we acted. But when I think about being righteous for someone else's benefit, I don't think about non-believing people. I think about people who are already themselves trying to be righteous. Like years ago, Amanda and I were uh, members at a different church before we started Bayou City. And um, they asked the leaders of the church to park away in far away parking spaces because the, like here, the parking lot could get crowded. And I think they only called us leaders so to just kind of stroke our ego so we'd be willing to park far away. And of course, we took the bait uh, hook, line, and sinker. And so we were parking in faraway places. Our kids were real little at the time. Jackson was three. Annabeth was a baby. And the smaller the baby, the more garbage that all comes with having a baby. You got carriers and strollers and bags and all kinds of different things. And then Jackson was three. He didn't want to walk from faraway parking places. And so we had to carry um, him. And so every Sunday morning from our car to the church, my arms were full. So I would ask Amanda to hold my Bible. But as soon as we got in the church building, with my arms still full, I would say, hey, tuck my Bible under my arm. And she would say, why? I was like, well, I went to the trouble to bring my Bible. I want all these people to know that I'm the kind of person that brings a Bible to church. She's like, why did I marry you? That's a silly example, but But a lot of my righteousness is driven by other righteous people seeing me be righteous. 
And if your primary motivation for being blameless is that so other Christians will see you being blameless, what happens when they're not watching? And you can see how easy it is to have an onstage persona and an offstage persona. But Paul says, no, we were holy and righteous and blameless for the purpose of those who did not believe. So if you need extra motivation in righteousness this week, don't let it be other people in this room and what they may or may not think about you and how they may or may not approve of you. Let it be for your neighbor and your friend at work and your friend from high school that your righteousness would be the platform of credibility that when you open your mouth about Jesus, they will have known that you kept watch over your conduct. And then finally, number three, we exhort, encourage, and charge. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, he uses that same technique, three synonyms, piling them up together for the point of emphasis. Exhort, encourage, and charge. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, there is a way that seems right to man. And that's how most of us are deciding our lives. That's how most of the world is deciding what they're gonna do. Yeah, this seems right. This is my intuition. This is my gut. As best I can tell, this seems like the right thing to do. But the end of that verse in Proverbs says, but in the end, it leads to death. So what we're doing when we talk about Jesus is we are exhorting, we are encouraging, we are charging. We're saying, no, I know that there is a way that seems right to you, but I insist that you stop and you think about this. I know it goes against kind of your intuition, but will you stop? Will you listen to me? Can we have a simple conversation? I want to tell you about these things. I want you to slow down. I really want you to think about them. That's why Paul went three different Sabbaths to the synagogue to reason with them that Jesus was the Messiah and the Messiah had to suffer. He's saying, I I insist You've been going along this track for hundreds of years, but I insist, I charge you, I exhort you, I encourage you to just stop and think about Jesus. And what I love about this passage is the line between are they believers or unbelievers is sort of blurry. Because in the Apostle Paul's mind, that once you believed in Jesus, you immediately started, in his words, walking. It's not like happens in our day where I'm a member of God's kingdom, but I'm not living my life in accordance with that. I sort of get to opt in to both the believing and the acting. We separate the two. Like when Amanda and I lived in England for six months, we didn't have any friends because uh, you know, obviously we moved there and we didn't know what to do with our free time. So we went and joined a gym. Obviously, that was her idea. And... And so at the beginning of the gym membership, you know, they give you one of those assessments, which is essentially where they tell you you're totally out of shape and you need to pay us extra money to privately train you. And so Amanda found this uh, class, the spin class. Now, this was many, many years ago before spin classes were super popular and she was loving it. And so she said to me, you got to come and try this class. I got in there and was like, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing it. This bike don't go anywhere, right? (laughs) And that, that leader up there is telling me we're climbing a hill, but there are no hills in this room. That's just a little knob at the front of the bike. She loved it. I hated it. So from that point on, we had 
a, a routine. We would both go into the gym together in the mornings. She would disappear into her class, and that was my permission to go back out to the car. <laughs> now, I faithfully paid my dues every month. I was a member of the gym. But that's it. And Christianity can become that. I'm a member. I believe. I'm I'm not walking. I'm not living. I'm not acting. But for Paul, there is no delineation. You believe and you walk. You believe and you act. You don't just join the kingdom. You join the kingdom. You embody the kingdom. And notice that he says in verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children. This is the second parent metaphor he's used in chapter two. Earlier on, he describes it like a mother with her children. But here it's like a father. For you know how like a father with his children, meaning When we came to you, we came with love, which is important. Paul and his friends were compelled by Christ to go into the world and tell people about Jesus, to leave their home in Antioch where they were based and make these missionary journeys. He was compelled by faithfulness to Jesus to go. But as they went, he found that he loved these people. This wasn't just something that he ought to do or was obligated to do. When I was in college, there was a man that I really looked up to in the faith and he was the most natural conversationalist that I've ever met. And he would tell people about Jesus, whether he just met you in a moment or was a long-term friend and he was good at both. But he sort of lived with this mandate that everywhere he went, every place he went, every person that he met, he tried to have a conversation about Jesus. And it was totally authentic to him. But I tried to imitate that because this is a person I was sort of looking to, but it was like King Saul's armor. When David is going to fight Goliath, King Saul puts his armor on David, but it just doesn't fit because it was Saul's armor and not David's armor. But I was in this thing where I, I got to imitate this person. I have to do what he's doing. This is what faithfulness looked like. And so there was one night in college where I'd spent all day on campus. I had not really thought about my faith or sharing or talking about Jesus or any of those kinds of things. And it was starting to get eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And I was just living with this tremendous sense of guilt. Like the day is going to pass and I will have not had a conversation about Jesus. So I got in my car and I went to the local Walmart and I bought something that I didn't need. And I got up to the cash register, just hoping that some kind of miraculous conversation was going to happen with this person. She's scanning my things and I begin to ask about, her and Jesus in the most awkward way possible. And she says to me, we go to church together. We're in the same Bible study together. I was like, yeah, but you're not bearing any fruit. So I'm not sure that you've heard. No, I just, I just apologized, but I didn't even care enough about her to look her in the eye and recognize her as a person. It was just something that I ought to do. And anytime you're having a Jesus conversation that's driven by ought, 
it will fall flat every time. He says, like a father with his children, with genuine love, we said these things to you. That's why you can't legislate Christianity. You can't make laws that force people into being Christians because there's no love there. And God has hardwired his love into the gospel. It's actually been attempted in America before, by the way, that will just force everybody to be Christian. The Puritans, before America was founded, attempted this. There were Puritan cities, and if you wanted to be a part of the city, if you wanted to have societal rights of voting and owning businesses and owning land, you also had to be a member of the church. And they pretty much got their way. And you know what it yielded? Not more Jesus followers. Deists. People who believed in the idea of a providential God, but with very little evidence of a personal faith in following Jesus. That's why the founding fathers of America talk a lot about God and very little about Jesus because their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers forced people, legislated Christianity. It's just not effective. What has moved the Christian faith forward in the United States of America is not laws and legislations, something a little bit more authentic and genuine. Like in 1857, for example, there was a pastor in one of the East Coast cities who just opened up the church at lunchtime for people to come and pray. So instead of having lunch, you would come to the church and, and pray for whatever was on your heart and mind or the nation, whatever needed to be prayed for. And he was pretty discouraged as pastors do because no one came. Just a few people came. But he kept being faithful and opening up the doors of the church at lunchtime. That was in September of 1857. In October of 1857, there was an economic crash. And word about these open doors of the church started to spread because people began inviting you're nervous about your job and losing your job and you have lost your job and you need to come to the church to pray today. And within just weeks, when there had just been a few, there were 10,000 people all over this city gathering at lunchtime to pray. Because people invited along. They were sincere, but not silent. I mean, think about how many people you know who are anxious today. What would it be like for you to, in a sincere way, say, hey, I have also been anxious, but I've found hope. Why don't you come to church with me this week? Or come and have coffee with me this week? Or come over to the apartment this week? Is there a future for Christianity? There is. If the messengers take the message, not adding in obstacles to the gospel, not hypocrites, and who are insisting, stop and think about this. Let's pray.